This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm JP Tasker, and this is the Power in Politics podcast for Wednesday, December 20th. Health officials across the country are once again ringing the alarm, arguing the healthcare system is failing Canadians. Coming up, we'll hear from doctors about the state of the crisis. And a 15-year-old boy is charged in an alleged plot to attack the Jewish community. He's one of five youths arrested for terrorism in six months. Does Canada have a youth radicalization problem? Across the country, hospitals say they are under overwhelming strain. Respiratory illnesses are spiking ahead of the holidays. It's forced some hospitals to postpone surgeries to free up space. Quebec's health minister is even telling residents to stay away from emergency rooms if they can, as ER doctors say the situation is now out of control. Dr. Kathleen Ross is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. She joins me now to discuss Canada's health care crisis. Doctor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy, happy to be here. Happy to have you. The government, as you know, announced a landmark health care funding deal earlier this year. They pumped about $2 billion into the Canada health transfer. There have been some other spending increases. Has that funding boost made a difference to the system? Have you noticed it? So these are uh, these are challenging times for certain. If, uh, with uh, over 6 million people not having access to primary care, surgical backlogs, emergency departments that are, that are overrun. Uh, and certainly we know that we need additional cash. Uh, and resources to into the system to make it work. So, 200 billion over over 10 years is a is a tremendous commitment for certain. Uh, but I also want to focus in on that 25 billion for those tailored bilateral agreements that allow individual provinces and jurisdictions to tailor those additional funding to meeting the challenges that we that we face. Uh, and only two provinces to date have actually signed on for those. And those key areas of focus across the country are access to family health uh, teams to supporting healthcare workers and, and reducing backlogs, increasing access to mental health and substance use, and of course, modernizing our healthcare system, improve how we collect data, uh, not just on healthcare delivery, uh, but who's doing healthcare, where, how, and where do we have gaps that we need to address. I mentioned that $2 billion, that one-time boost, that was really intended to clear backlogs, to improve wait times, the things you just mentioned there. But the Fraser Institute, they recently released their annual review, and they found that wait times are the longest they've ever been. The median wait time is now nearly 28 weeks from a GP referral to treatment. What do you make of those figures? So there's no question that we have to look at the whole system to solve our current crisis. That commitment for funding is very necessary, but we need to look at how we are delivering services, who's delivering services, and ensure that we have uh, enough healthcare workers to actually deliver uh, with those resources. At the moment, we are struggling to meet our human health resources across Canada, uh, and it's time to modernize how we deliver care and, and think outside the box to improve access for Canadians. Yeah, on staffing, I mean, there's been huge population growth in this country over the last year. We've added about 1.3 million people to the population. And when I look at the number of residency spots, so the number of doctors that were graduating into the system, that number's been stagnant. In 2018, we had 3,300 first-year residents. In 2023, we had 3,500. We've added 4 million people in that five-year span. Are we really graduating enough doctors? Are there enough people to take care of all these new folks that live here? So it really is a triple challenge that we face. We do need to increase the number of people that we're training in Canada across the board when it comes to healthcare workers, no question. 
we need to work very hard on retaining the workers that we have in the system. Uh, because unfortunately, we're burning out in in, uh, in large numbers, largest largest numbers of early retirements and people leaving the profession altogether than we have ever seen. But that's a, that's critically important. And then we do need to have a way to streamline internationally trained healthcare workers that are already in Canada or wanting to come to Canada, so that we can incorporate them into our workforce. We do need to uh, to really increase the number of people delivering services and change how we're delivering those services so we can be the most effective. Would the CMA support allowing more international medical graduates into the residency system? Because that seems to be a major roadblock right now. A lot of folks, many of them Canadian-born, have gone to school overseas. They want to come home and practice, and they face a lot of red tape when they try and get a residency position to launch their career. Would the CMA support allowing more of those folks into a residency? So the CMA has absolutely supported the incorporation of internationally trained uh, healthcare professionals. We saw in the uh, in the federal government's commitment to funding this year, uh, five hundred thousand dollars to increase those practice ready assessment positions that are that streamline clinicians in, in in the most efficient fashion. But actually, to have a hard look at what are the roadblocks and barriers and try and streamline those processes. Uh, and this is uh, this is no small undertaking, but I think it's beginning to move. You mentioned six and a half million Canadians do not have access to primary care. That is, to me, an eye-popping figure. That is a lot. I mean, your home province of British Columbia, nearly a million people don't have access to a family doctor. Can we really say we have a universal and accessible health care system if so many people don't have regular access to a family doctor? I think that's an absolute fair point. Uh, so looking at primary care, and as a family physician myself, I feel this uh, very dearly. Primary care is the foundation of our healthcare system. It is the front door where people turn to for care. Uh, and if we don't have that connection to those long-term relationship-based care, we know that our outcomes are not as good. We see people coming into the emergency departments to access primary care because they have nowhere else to go. This is absolutely a priority. We also know it takes a long time to train primary care providers, both family physicians and nurse practitioners. So we need to find a way to wrap teams around our primary care providers so that we can deliver services to Canadians uh, in a broader sense. So reimagining what that primary care foundation looks like. You mentioned cash off the top. I know it's not always about money, but money certainly helps when we're talking about health care. The government's about to spend $13 billion on dental care over the next five years. Do you support that program or do you think that money should have been used to prop up our existing health care system? I think we need to take a broader scope um, view of what is health. Health isn't just about the, the services that I provide. It's not just about the medications that I prescribe, but taking that broader sense. Dental health is important, and there are many disease processes, unfortunately, that, uh, that come from poor dental health. So that's part of it. Looking at social determinants of health, housing, food security, education, employment, these are all other things that Canada needs to take a hard look at if we're going to improve the health of Canadians. But I've heard some criticism that maybe now is not the time to stand up dental care, and they're talking about a new pharma care program in the new year. Maybe it's time not to stand up new programs, but to invest in the system we already have. You know, there's already a system on the ropes. There's already a major crisis in the in the public Medicare system we have. We shouldn't really branch out and try and stand up some new programs. Do you share that view? 
So the healthcare system that we have currently is not delivering the services that Canadians need. Not to say that there are not pockets of excellent work going on across the country, but we don't have a system that uh, that is delivering. We need to start thinking in a broader sense and modernize how we deliver healthcare for Canadians. I spoke to your predecessor at the end of 2022. He said at the time that the healthcare system was facing a collapse. He was really quite worried about the state of affairs. Do you feel more hopeful about the healthcare system than than he did at this time last year? So I feel hopeful this year only because we have seen cross-jurisdictional commitment to improving healthcare. This is the first time we've seen provincial, territorial, federal government uh, representation all speaking the same language and all driving towards the same end goals. I recognize that's not going to happen overnight, but that commitment is immensely powerful. All right, let's leave it there. Thank you. Dr. Kathleen Ross is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Quebec, Quebec physicians are sounding the alarm about the state of the province's health care system. Wait times for surgeries are growing. Nursing homes are out of spaces and the situation in Quebec's emergency rooms is deteriorating rapidly. Many ERs are packed well beyond capacity. The message from the province's health minister to Quebecers is stay away from the ER if you can. He's also making a push for people to get vaccinated. We have a lot of vulnerable people that come because of influenza or because of covid and they should have been vaccinated. And I think that the situation over the next few weeks will deteriorate. Let's be clear about that. And that's the reason just before, a couple of days before Christmas, I'm being very clear. The situation over uh, those two uh, key things, COVID and influenza, will not improve. Dr. Judy Morris is the president of the Association of Emergency Physicians of Quebec. Dr. Morris, welcome to the show. You're welcome. Dr. Morris, how would you describe the current state of affairs in Quebec's emergency rooms? Um, things are probably as bad as they've ever been and, and throughout uh, many uh, areas of the province. Um, we see crowding, uh, you know, uh, occupancy rates that, are, uh, that we've never seen before. Uh, you know, we see rates of 200 and, and above on a regular basis in a lot of emergency rooms longer wait times to being seen by doctors and and it's really concerning because we know it's tied to uh, you know uh, diminished quality of care and when we look at data and studies on the on the matter so what is so many of the hospitals as you say well over capacity what's contributing to all this why are we seeing a surge in patients at the er well, uh, our network, our emergency rooms have always been fragile. I've always seen crowding pretty much every year uh, when we would have uh, influenza waves uh, pre-COVID. And in the past two years, we've lost uh, healthcare personnel throughout the healthcare network. And this has diminished our capacity uh, to take care of all patients coming in. And what happens when, why we talk a lot about the emergency rooms is that when there's no capacity in hospital beds and long-term care beds, well, people kind of stay stuck in the emergency room on the stretcher side, and it causes disproportionate pressure on, you know, ED teams uh, across the province and across the country, frankly. We're seeing that elsewhere as well. 
Yeah, when people don't have access to primary care, they come to the ER, right? I was looking at some stats today. 1.2 million Quebecers do not have a family doctor. They don't have access to primary care. So they're coming to see you in the emergency room. Surely that's a big part of the problem as well. That's that's one part of the problem. And in Quebec, they have tried to address this by creating a phone line, by creating access in clinics, even for the patients who didn't have primary care access. Uh, but it really affects more the kind of the waiting room, the minor care area of the emergency room. What we're seeing right now on what my colleagues, uh, you know, have done kind of uh, uh, raising the flag on, on the issue is is the stretcher side is also suffering a lot. And this is because we lack long-term care, uh, home care services, uh, mental health resources, and hospital bed capacity, and also just the lack of general um, hospital flow and efficiency throughout the system. The health minister of your province said today that the best thing they can do right now really is just have people avoid going to the emergency rooms altogether and he's urging folks to get vaccinated for covid and influenza Uh, what do you make of that advice this is a last minute resort kind of we're stuck uh please help us out uh and again it's going to affect mostly as the ones that are well it's going to affect mostly the wait times in the waiting room but the stretcher side, uh, well, the vaccination and try to prevent spreading the disease might help us because what we see on the stretcher side of the emergency room is the more vulnerable population, the elderly, the patients with chronic disease that do get COVID and do have to spend sometimes a few days in the hospital. Uh, so this is going to you know, be of less help. Uh, and I'll try to avoid the ER um, for, for that other part of the problem that is the really the, the, uh, the one that we have to address urgently. I'm looking at a letter here from the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians to uh, Ministers of Health and Premiers, and they're warning in this letter that the health system needs immediate interventions to ensure its survival. That's pretty dramatic language. Is that how you feel? Do you feel like the system is threatened if there's not some sort of help from the province or the federal government? Definitely. Uh, Because what we're seeing on the ground is uh, teams being stretched thin, uh, uh, you know, teams losing their, uh, you know, experienced personnel because uh, the conditions, the work conditions are are really tough. And we're seeing, uh, you know, patient care suffer as a result. And we've seen throughout the country and in Quebec recently, cases uh, uh, of, uh, of people, you know, not getting access fast enough to uh, emergency and to hospital care and, and having, you know, terrible events occurring because of that. Uh, so we, we, this needs to be addressed. And, and by, but it, it cannot just be addressed, you know, to target the ER. And it, it's the whole system that has to reinvent itself in order to care for the population and, and in the years to come. Yeah, I know you're not an oncologist, but I'll just tell you these numbers. We know in Quebec more than 4,000 oncology patients have been waiting for their operations. More than 600 of them have been waiting nearly two months to get life-saving care. Are we at a place now where people are quite literally dying because they can't access care? Um, probably. Uh, and, and, and again, and when we see that uh, that res- healthcare resources are so scarce and, and you know, there are delays in care there, and patients suffer as a result and, and the literature tells us that as well. So, uh, and, and one of the things is that we're, you know, we're pushing towards uh, more efficiency uh, using the hospital, uh, you know, in a, in a smarter way and try to 
to work on outpatient care clinics and outpatient care as in general. And this will benefit all the other healthcare sectors uh, like oncology, like surgery, not just the ER. ER is kind of the tip of the iceberg and, and where we see uh, the overflow happening, but all the areas of healthcare are suffering. The federal government announced earlier this year a $2 billion infusion into the Canada Health Transfer, and they said it was to address wait times, surgical backlogs from COVID. Have you seen that money trickle through the system? Has it helped at all? Uh, it's always tough to to follow the, the, the trail of money like that. Uh, we sure hope it will trickle down, and we sure hope... Uh, that we're going to be able to to measure the effect of uh, those incentives uh, because we do need the help. We do need more capacity. We do need more personnel, qualified personnel, uh, to work uh, to better the care of uh, of Canadians and, and Quebecers. What do you need from the Quebec government? Uh, well, the first thing I think is, is being done is acknowledging that uh, there is a huge problem and needs to be dealt with you know, faster than, than later. Um, and, and I think we need to, to look, there's data out there. There's other places that have put measures in, in place, other countries. Uh, we need to look at what's being done elsewhere and what has worked elsewhere. What has been, what is working in some areas, some hospitals fare better than other hospitals. So we need to sit down and they need to sit down and, and take a look at what has worked and, and implemented throughout the healthcare network. And, if, and also we need we need to increase our capacity within our walls of the hospitals. So if capacity isn't increased, if some of the work you're talking about isn't done and done quickly, are what are we looking at? Are we looking at the collapse of the healthcare system? Well, we're looking at uh, hindered quality of care for patients, that's for sure. And and longer delays and and more stress on, on healthcare personnel. And, and what we fear is also losing uh, the precious members of our team uh, that will just be fed up with uh, the, the constant pressure that they, they bear uh, in their daily work. Okay, let's leave it there. Thank you so much to Dr. Judy Morris, the president of the Association of Emergency Physicians of Quebec. Thank you. Thanks. A 15-year-old Ottawa boy charged with plotting a terrorist attack against Jewish people appeared in court today. He cannot be identified due to protections of the Youth Criminal Justice Act. It's alleged that in late October, the teen instructed someone to carry out a terrorist activity against Jewish people. And around the same time, he communicated instructions about an explosive substance. The RCMP has arrested five young persons on terrorism-related offenses in the last six months. With this arrest being the fifth, the National Policing Organization is warning of a rise in violent extremism among Canadian youth and what they are calling a concerning trend in online radicalization. Barbara Perry is the director of the Center on Hate, Bias and Extremism and Amarnath Amarsingham is an assistant professor with Queen's University School of Religion. Amarnath, I'll start with you. A young person here in Ottawa has been arrested for five terrorism and explosive related charges. They've been accused of targeting Jewish people. We're limited in what we can say publicly. We do, we do know now, we just learned from court this afternoon that it's a 15-year-old boy. What do you make of this case? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a few things that are, you know, worrisome about it. Um, first, it's an extremely young person. Um, it's not the first time we've seen young people um, involved in terrorism cases or extremism cases, of course. Um, but it, it, you know, the the trend isn't uh, in the right direction. Um, second, I think, you know, with the flare up in the Middle East that we're seeing with Israel and Gaza, um, we are seeing a lot of 
what some scholars call you know reciprocal radicalization um, on on the side of both communities. Um, Jewish uh, communities are being targeted, Muslim communities are being targeted, and I think the more uh, some of that rhetoric is ramping up, um, you're seeing a lot of these young people kind of pushed to the brink um, and responding um, in ways that are not healthy. And so um, you know we're seeing. We're seeing kind of an uptick in that uh, that kind of violence as well. Barbara, it's not just this 15-year-old boy in Ottawa. The RCMP are raising red flags about some other young people and terrorism. Five have been arrested in the last six months alone. Are are terror suspects just getting younger and younger? Well, I think it's a, it's a bit of both. I mean, we're seeing a, a lot of adults still obviously engage in this sort of activity, but I think that there is a certain vulnerability amongst youth right now. Uh, and in some respects, it's a hangover from COVID when they were spending so much time in the online spaces and continue to do so where they are vulnerable, uh, where they are easily manipulated by uh, folks trying, trying to draw them into darker and darker spaces. Yeah, Amarnath, I want your thoughts on this too. I know you've been tracking terror suspects for a long time. Um, Why are so many young people being drawn into these networks right now? I mean, we're talking about teenagers here. They're not even out of high school. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of them are swimming in some of the dark corners of the internet, um, and then when you know tempers flare up, um, people are you know one of some of these individuals will be pushed uh, into violence, right? But the the other thing to point out, I think uh, the RCMP's statement kind of made it seem like everyone was part of the same ideology, um, and, and they aren't, right? I think the common denominator is that they're all young people, um, but you you know the Calgary arrests uh, were largely um, attacking. Um, uh, LGBTQ communities. Um, in this case, we're seeing uh, what looks like at least an ISIS-inspired potentially um, uh, threat against the Jewish community, um, and and so we're seeing kind of a, a a fractured extremism landscape, a very you know complicated landscape these days with uh, misogynistic violence, with far-right violence, with religiously motivated violence, um, um, and and so young people are being drawn to these uh, kinds of movements because they you know. Partly because they live online, partly because of uh, international events that are galvanizing them to do something beyond simply writing letters to your politician or posting in the online space. Um, there's a real call sometimes to, um, particularly for young people, to do something about it, right? Physically and and through through acts of resistance. And so, I think you put that put that all together, and you're seeing um, kind of an uptick that the RCMP has pointed out. Yeah, Barbara, what do you make of that? It's not just one ideology. It seems to be an explosion of various forms of extremism that we're seeing largely fueled by social media, isn't it? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, Amar's assessment is as accurate there. Uh, obviously, I think we are seeing uh, multiple motivations uh, here. But I think it's also important to remind uh, viewers and listeners that uh, it, it's not just in those extreme spaces that we're hearing these narratives, that we're hearing uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, homophobia, transphobia, uh, in very mainstream spaces as well, from political figures, from uh, you know other public figures. So I think that youth are already primed because of almost the normalization of hate that when they're then approached or recruited uh, in the online space, it makes it much easier uh, to to draw them into those conversations. Amarnath, you know, parents often claim they have no idea what their kids were up to, right? When they're faced with this sort of situation, they, they often say they didn't realize their child was being radicalized or they had slipped into extremism. What should parents look out for to prevent something like this from happening? Well, I mean, I'm really glad the RCMP put out that statement um, talking about 
things to look out for, you know, the dehumanization of others, the um, kind of hyper anti-government rhetoric, that sort of thing. Um, that's very rare for the RCMP to put out statements like that, and I'm glad they did, because part of what's happening um, now is uh, there's so much rhetoric out there, there's so much extremist rhetoric out there, but that we don't know who the talkers are and who the walkers are going to be, right? Who, who, so many people are talking and saying, uh, extreme extreme things uh, that we don't know which one of them is going to tip over into violence uh, potentially. And so the RCMP's point is clear in the sense that we want to make sure, particularly with very young people, um, that there is a prevention mechanism that you're not going to arrest your way out of everything. You're not going to, uh, you know, jail these kids and, and get you know, get out of this uh, problem, um, that if we can notice it early enough, if we can notice telltale signs early enough, uh, there is a prevention mechanism in place. That The Canadian government has spent the last decade or so building and funding um, NGOs and um, organizations across Canada, which are, you know, with very well-trained people trying to help in the prevention space. And so, um, I do hope that more of this kind of education uh, takes place because uh, we don't, you know, parents don't need to wait till laws are broken uh, before they find out uh, that, that their kid is up to something or, in the, you know, reading and doing the wrong things. Yeah, Barbara, do you think we're a better place to deal with this now? I know, you know, we've been talking about this for quite some time, really. It flared up with ISIS, of course, and the Syrian civil war, and then there was a bit of a lull, at least for us in the news media. We weren't covering this as often, but is the country better equipped? Is the system better equipped to deal with this issue than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago? Well, I, I think uh, in the time that I've been working in this space, and, and I work primarily around right-wing extremism, um, there has been a, a dramatic change, and that's over the, the past 10 or 12 years or so, and I think in particular the last five or six years, where, as Amara suggested, we are seeing more organizations being supported by the, the federal government and provincial governments as well uh, to develop programming that is intended to intervene at early stages, uh, to provide things like critical digital literacy, which are useful not just to the youth, but also to adults and caregivers so that they can actually use those same skills to identify, uh, you know, risky behavior in the online space. Um, so I think we have come a considerable distance in, in the last few years, um, which is not to say that there's not still plenty of, of work left to be done. I want to end on the Israel-Gaza conflict because that certainly has prompted a lot of anger and frustration. We've seen that spill out into the streets of this country. Amarnath, are you fearful there will be an uptick in terrorist activity given what's going on in the Middle East? Um, terrorist activity, I'm not so sure about, but I think overall uh, communal violence, um, you know, polarization, intercommunal um, distrust and hate speech, that sort of thing I, I, is bound to happen. I mean, Canada is a country of diasporas in many ways. So whether you're talking about, you know, the um, Hindu Sikh issue or the Israel-Palestine issue or, uh, you know, a host, whole host of other things, um, vast amounts of Canadians come from these communities. They have families back home. They have, you know, vested interests back home. Um, and so those tensions are going to impact communities here. Um, whether that tips over into, you know, terrorism is another story, I think. And I'm, I'm uh, optimistic that, that those numbers aren't going to be that high. But I, I do think, you know, we're, we're already noticing just inter intercommunal um, tensions and, and, and harm that's associated directly with what's happening um, overseas um, and so that that I think is, is is my broader concern is how how these communities are actually going to be able to get along with each other and live beside each other going forward Barbara are you fearful that world events will spill over into this country that it could fuel some terrorist activity in this country 
Well, we've already seen a dramatic spike in hate crime. Uh, so, I, you know, the question is, where does that line between hate crime and terrorism or extremist mm-hmm. violence, uh, where is that line? Uh, you know, much of what we've seen has been vandalism uh, and graffiti and name calling, that sort of thing. But we've also seen, uh, you know, firebombs and Molotov cocktails uh, and, and shots fired into, uh, into schools. Uh, so is that hate crime or is that terrorism? So I think we're already beginning to see... Uh, an escalation in uh, you know violence motivated by hatred of the other um what you know i I don't know which 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 you want to call it how you want to label it but the risk is there just a dramatic surge in anti-jewish hate and islamophobia in this country since october 7th all right thank you both barbara perry and amarnath amar singham appreciate your time guys thank you thank you Having seen the government up close, it's really redoubled my desire to become prime minister. We could do so much more to make people's lives better. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh earlier this week claiming victory for his party's push on policies like dental care and pharmacare. But if you look at the trend line from poll aggregator 338canada.com, the NDP haven't broken above 21% all year. They're kind of stuck there. If the election is shaping up to be a battle between liberals and conservatives, what can the NDP do to stay relevant? It's time to bring in the power panel. Rob Benzie is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Amanda Olivero is a political commentator. Tim Powers is the chair of Summa Strategies. And here with me is Jordan Likeness, the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation. So Jordan, I'll ask you this. Um, It does seem like the NDP is kind of stuck in neutral, right? I mean, there is a lot of voter fatigue. Like, people are clearly frustrated with the Liberal government and where things are going. They've seen their numbers dip. But it seems like Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives have benefited, so far at least, to this point. They're kind of picking up that support from people who've peeled off from the Liberals. What do you think that Jagmeet Singh has to do in the new year to kind of pick up some steam? Well, I think he's already doing a lot of things that he needs to do, and it's and it's part part of it is recognized it's a bit of a challenging environment for the new Democrats, uh, and we often forget because they do take up a lot of space with the confidence and supply agreement, but they're fourth party. You know, in the last year they've managed to get a fair amount pushed through that agreement. So we've seen dental care, as we just talked about. We're seeing pharmacare. They've got money for indigenous housing, anti-scab legislation. Like, this would be actually a pretty full agenda if they were a mm-hmm. government, right, let alone the fourth party. So I think on that on that account, actually, he's done pretty well. But it is always a challenge for the NDP to break through between, in that liberal conservative fight. Mm-hmm. And while it's true that, broadly speaking, they've been stuck around 20, we also saw something at the beginning of December where the liberals and the NDP were actually tied outside of Quebec. Mm-hmm. And so we have a bit of a progressive primary here in Canada. Canada often. And when you start to see those numbers get really close together, that's both an opportunity for the NDP and it's actually pretty dangerous territory for the Liberals to hang around in for too long. Yeah, you stole my thunder, Jordan. I was going to ask Amanda that very thing. Because they're all, thank you. You're just so good. Yeah, I just can't help it. Um, so, yeah, some polls suggest that the Liberals and the NDP are neck and neck in English Canada, Amanda. Is the, is the NDP eating the Liberals' lunch when it comes to progressive voters? Have they allowed too much leakage? Have they allowed too many of the people that used to be in their column to drift over to the NDP? 
I don't think so. I mean, I think that I think we can all agree that a lot of the support that's been lost from the Liberals has gone to the Conservatives, not the NDP. And that's why we've seen them sort of stagnant throughout the year. Um, obviously, irrelevancy is the death knell in politics. And I do think that they have they run this risk, mostly because of the framing set by the Conservative Party, who have done a pretty good job of setting this agenda. And Jordan mentioned it, sort of this us versus them, pinning a lot of the angst and the anxieties and and worries of, of Canadians on the shoulders of the Prime Minister and really positioning it as a two-man, in this case, fight. Um, they've also spent a lot of dollars and effort into their communication strategy, taking their leader from virtual obscurity to uh, what he is today, dominating those headlines. And I think Singh and the NDP have really struggled to find their voice in that framing. Like, where do they fit into that? What they are championing are issues like pharmacare. And we just talked about the fact that only 18% of Canadians think that we should be prioritizing it. So they're also on issues that haven't captured the same imagination or compelled or momentum that the Conservatives have around issues like housing, which in my opinion should have actually been an NDP issue. It was prime right for the taking and they somehow missed the opportunity to get behind that one. So I think it's been a bunch of communications misses for them this year. Yeah, Tim, interestingly enough, the NDP sent out a press release today to all the people on Parliament Hill who cover them, and it had an interesting headline, Pierre Polyev and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad year. <laughs> Reality check. Well, this is interesting. So they're blasting Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives, the NDP. They are, they're not just directing their firepower at the Liberals. They're taking on Polyev. They've got a long list of perceived failures here. Uh, what do you make of that strategy? Do they sense that there may be an opening in trying to capture some orange-blue switchers? No, no, JP. JP, this is like the holiday letter <laughs> we all get from that family we haven't heard from from a long time. And read it, guys, read it. Pay attention to me and our family. And thanks, we'll write you again in another year to prove that we're relevant. Uh, the NDP has to do that. But look, I love the way Amanda characterized the fact that the mean old conservatives are having their way with uh, with the uh, with with the NDP as Amanda well knows the party she loves and supports do a fine job of bludgeoning rolling throwing the NDP out for lunch uh, when they need to and they will do so again this is the I know Amanda you would never do that yourself but <laughs> this is this is so classic it's shocking right? allegations this, Tim yeah I know shocking Take shocking. Me uh, shocking and a I apologize profusely, but I don't. Uh, look, the NDP are struggling. They're not getting the broader traction. And, and Jordan can tell you, too, if we remember the NDP uh, convention recently in Hamilton. They took some, some of their own heat internally as well for for this agreement and going forward with it. So Mr. Singh, look, he's an able politician. And God, didn't you love the shot of the new dad? Congratulations, Mr. <laughs> Singh, with the baby in his arms doing doing all of this. So Mr. Singh's an able communicator. He's going to try his best. But they're going to get rolled again, JP, unless they find a way to uh, break out of their relationship with the liberals that is and make it strategically beneficial for them, not the liberals. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. He had the little baby. Uh, obviously, everything is strategic. <laughs> Maybe it's just to present him as... I don't know what. Friendly, not a, a guy with a dad bod. I think he's got a newborn, and they're yeah. just really hard to That's put down. True. He's going for the dad bod vote, maybe, is the whole play there. Um, Rob, you know, you've seen a similar thing play out in Ontario, right? Because there is this divide 
there are, you know, liberals and NDP in that province are kind of neck and neck, right? And that's been hugely beneficial to the conservatives. I mean, that's probably why they won more seats in the last provincial election, right? They actually picked up steam, which is kind of rare for an incumbent government. What do you make of this split right now that's going on between the liberals and the NDP? And really, the NDP maybe weigh in on this, the NDP going after the conservatives, less so than the liberals. Well, I mean, look, if you're the New Democrats, you have to do something, right? And, and I think yep. it's not a, a bad idea. They didn't get any credit for on affordability things this year, even though I thought Jagmeet Singh mm-hmm. did a good job with the grocery store uh, magnets and, 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 and talking about supermarket prices and things like that. Uh, I, but for whatever reason, he didn't get any credit for it. Uh, and the Liberals stole, stole some of his thunder at that at Thanksgiving. Remember, um, uh, an industry minister Champagne was going on about you know lower prices for in for grocery stores or or else. Uh, I don't know if it worked, but anecdotally, I don't think people are talking about grocery prices as much as they were three months ago. I still think they're high, though. Uh, having said that, the the dynamic of Tory. NDP switchers is a problem for the New Democrats. We saw that here in Ontario last uh, June, in June 2022, the, the election. Uh, the New Democrats lost uh, seats to uh, the Tories, to Doug Ford's Tories, in Timmins, in Hamilton, here in Toronto, uh, and in Windsor. And that's a problem. If that starts to happen federally, uh, they don't have a lot of seats in Ontario, in fairness, but if that starts to ha- happen in British Columbia, they've got a big problem. So I think they have to attack Polyev. He is kind of the bell of the ball right now. But there isn't going to be an election uh, right now. I don't think there's going to be an election for two more years. So, you know, who knows what 2025 looks like, let alone 2024. You guys are all just so smart. You keep taking my next line of questioning. And that's what it was going to be, Jordan. <laughs> what do you make of the supply and confidence agreement? And do you think it holds through the entirety of next year? Do you think that we can make it to 2025? Or... Do you see maybe there being some cracks in the foundations? Well, I think that what the Liberals need more than anything else right now is time. They need time because mm-hmm. if they go to an election right now, they will be eaten for breakfast by Pierre Polyev. So there's every incentive on the part of the government to make this agreement last, to continue to find concessions for the NDP. And for the NDP, there's benefit for them as long as they're getting good stuff out of the government. So I think that in that instance, it's very likely to last into 2025. Uh, what the New Democrats need to do is they also have to create a little bit of space between themselves and the government and make a clear offer to Canadians around affordability that's focused on issues that matter to them. And so that's going to be their challenge in the coming year. It is always hard for the NDP to be heard in Ottawa and to break through that that fight between the red and the blue. But I've heard the death of the party predicted many times before, even right before 2011, mm. the breakthrough that Jack Layton had in the orange wave. So it's you can never count them out. Amanda, do you think the Prime Minister's office will get tired of taking some directions, if you will, from the NDP? Like, do you see the supply and confidence agreement sticking around until it's scheduled end in 2025? Yes. I, I don't think they're going to get tired right now because I, I don't think they have an option right now. I think that, you know, this is this is not the time, to Jordan's point, to go to the polls. And this is the time to really drag the puck. I'm sorry if I use that that for analogy <laughs> correctly <laughs> Jim you'll have to correct rag the puck or is it rag the puck rag rag, rag. Yeah. you got it sorry every Canadian hockey lover is looking at me right now being like are you really Canadian I am and I come from a hockey family I apologize but the point is um that really the liberals need they do they need the time and I think that I'm a fan of the uh 
confidence and supply agreement, I don't think that it served the NDP. Like, I think that there's uh, a case to be made that there's merit behind the policies that have been able to be pushed forward. But I think to a lot of Canadians, they're sort of seen like almost like the lackey of the Liberal Party right now. I don't think it's served them. And they're certainly not getting credit, public credit, for what's been brought to the table. So I think the challenge is more for the NDP than it is for the Liberals at this point. That's always a challenge for a junior partner in these kind of agreements. We saw it in Britain, for example, with the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives. They got wiped out the next election when they were in a coalition. Um, but who knows? I mean, the NDP have quite successfully, I would say, uh, publicly tried to take credit for a lot of things. Whether they are actually rewarded by voters, we'll see. But we're going to leave it there for today. Thank you to the Power Panel, Amanda Alvaro, Rob Benzie, Tim Powers, and Jordan Lightness. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm JP Tasker. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.